Welcome to Elmira Baptist Church, and uh, we're glad that you're here, glad that everybody here is here, and uh, Pastor, if you could close that door on your way out, thank you, sir. And uh, we are looking at Colossians chapter 1, if you want to turn there, we're going to read verse 19. Um, Pastor just mentioned that uh, Nita and Larry are had uh, an accident yesterday, and uh, Larry uh, is in the hospital with some uh, potentially broken ribs, and uh, Nita's at home, but uh, they're kind of suffering the after effects of a car accident, so we want to keep them in prayer. Um, we are at Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to be reading verses 19 through 25 in a minute, waiting uh, to let people kind of come in and get settled. Welcome to everybody at home. Thank you for watching from home. We appreciate you being there. I can't see you, but I know you're there because I hear periodically from people who actually watch not only at live, but some watch streaming later on. So we're glad that all of you are able to hear this. Today we have a bit of a challenging lesson because one of the, the verse we're talking about, verse 24, is a much disputed verse. Let's pray and ask the Lord to be with us. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to look at your word. We recognize that this book is a part of the inspired word of God, and we want to read it, to understand it, and apply it to our lives so that we might be more like the Lord Jesus Christ and more like you. Pray, Father, through the power of the Spirit that you would help us to understand your word. I pray that you would be with this class this morning, be with those that are here, those that are home, and we especially pray for those that are ill, and we pray for Nita and Larry Jacobs for healing, Father, that you would restore them up, that you would heal the, the broken ribs, Larry, and anything else that's wrong, as well as Nita, comfort them, ease their pain. I pray, Father, your Spirit would be with them and comfort them and their afflictions and sickness, and pray that you would, uh, injuries. I pray that you would raise them up, that they might be back with us soon. Uh, we pray for, again, your help in understanding this passage, that we might have a full realization of what you're trying to say to us so that we can live by it. Thank you again for each one that's here. We pray for each family that's represented. We pray for those that are ill again and those that are hurt. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So looking at uh, this passage, we are just moving into a new passage, Colossians 1, 24 through chapter 2, verse 7, calling this part 1, and we're going to call it the ministry of Paul. He has just finished a large section that is was on the supremacy of Christ, and it extended from uh, chapter uh, 1 verse 18 or 19 through verse 23 and if you look at your uh, handout there under introduction we're going to we're not going to go very far but right at verse 23b where it says whereof I Paul have made a minister that's a transition into a new section um, where Paul indicates he has made a minister that moves into a section where he explains his ministry so 
let's read together. Uh, I'll read if you'll follow along verse, and keep open to this section. Chapter 1, verse 19 through 25. For it pleased the Father that in him all fullness should dwell. Let me get my... And verse 20, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If you continue in the faith grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. And today's verse, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. And next week and following, whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. So looking at the introduction section, page one of the handout, there's a subtle transition between from verse 23b, where he says, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, to verse 24, which becomes a different topic. Paul moves into a section in which he explains his ministry and his office. Now, Paul had not visited Colossae, and there are not a lot of personal references in his letter to people in Colossae because he didn't know them firsthand. Paul wanted to establish his authority and right to address a church which he did not directly start personally and where he was not known in person. I repeated person on purpose. That's redundant on purpose because he didn't have that personal relationship with all of them. Now, correct an error where it says in Colossians 1.17, that should be 1.7. <laughs> Verse Colossians 1.7, he says uh, that he reminded them that Epaphras was his representative, Paul's own representative, who had brought the gospel to the Colossians. He says in uh, Colossians 1.7, As you also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, and it, and really in our behalf, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. Uh, Epaphras was his representative that had brought the gospel to Colossians. Remember we talked about he, he, we believe that he was saved up in, um, in uh, Ephesus when uh, things were going on up there and Paul was there for three years. And uh, Paul points out in this passage in verse 23 and 24, that he's a minister, and actually 25 as well. He's a minister of the gospel to the church worldwide. Now, when I say that, uh, you know, we have a church, Elmira Baptist Church, but there's also the church, the whole body of Christ. And that's what I mean when I say worldwide. Now, um, 
the scholars, when they were writing about the church universal, the body of Christ, sometimes they would call it the Catholic church because that literally means general. So the Roman Catholic church is one uh, faith, so to speak, one religion. And the Catholic church is the body of Christ. So I stay away from that because of the confusion. The Roman Catholics are the ones that have the views that we disagree with, okay, and have the churches with the statues, et cetera. And then the Catholic Church is the, the body of Christ. So sometimes you'll hear that. Okay, so I'm going to use the term worldwide so you'll know I'm talking about the church universal. Yes, sir? I never knew that was the definition of the word Catholic. Yeah, I believe, it's, I believe it means general, yes. What? Uh, yeah, I think so. The, the Apostles' Creed, I think. Yeah. I think so, yes. Very good. Uh, so the Colossians are under his ministry and authority as ordained by God. Because he's very careful to establish why he is uh, talking to them. And, that, and he also presents, not only to present some principles uh, regarding joy and suffering, but to establish his authority as an apostle and that he has the right because remember, he, Paul was always, I don't think we really discussed this, but Paul was always careful not to go into somebody else's area that where they've been working, lest he confuse people. So he always didn't uh, try to stay in his own area. But if you remember, Epaphras came to him and said, we need help because in, when he was in prison and said, you have, there's a problem here with, uh, with a doctrinal error. So uh, Paul here, in the next uh, passage, major passage from discussing his ministry from Colossians one twenty four to chapter 2 verse 7 he, he d discusses four aspects of his ministry in relationship to the Colossians so that this affects us too. The first one and you see the big word bolded there, suffering, chapter 1 verse 24, that's today and then in future days we're going to talk about his, not only his suffering, we're going to talk about his commission to preach, and I put the passage there behind it, his concern, and then his challenge to them. So first, today, is suffering. Paul, in the previous verses, if you'll remember, and this is under A, suffering, middle of the page one, Paul, in previous verses, 15 through 23, proclaimed Christ's unique supremacy, his sovereignty, his superiority, and his sufficiency as well, and then uh, his, also his preeminence. He concluded verse 23 with a reference to the spread of the gospel to the world with a statement that he was made a minister of the gospel, and that's the transition. In verse 24, he states his sufferings are a part of his ministry or that ministry that he is involved in. In verse 2, Paul states that now his sufferings he has experienced as a minister were for the Colossians and for the whole church. And he rejoices in those sufferings. He says in verse 24, who rejoice, who now, we often skip over that, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake. Sometimes for his body's sake kind of get lo gets lost because he's added that of Christ in my flesh. But 
he rejoices for my sufferings for you and for his body's sake. So the sufferings he experienced as a minister were for the Colossians and the whole church. And he rejoices in those sufferings. So now has two meanings. So I'm on 3A. First one, it has a sense of timeliness. It has a sense of time. If I say, I'm teaching now, you know that I'm teaching, okay? And um, that's the sense of, it's a sense of timeliness. It has to do with time. Paul's joy and suffering were both realities. That means they were happening at the same time right now as he wrote this letter. His present condition Remember, he wrote this as a prisoner. His present condition is as a prisoner in chains. He's saying right now at this time, I'm suffering as a prisoner, but rejoicing. It's also transitional. So I could say at the end of this, I was teaching, but now we want to move to the next service. It's a, it's a, it's a, uh, to the service. It's a transitional thing that shows a relationship of one thing to another. So Item B under three in the handout. Now is also used in a relational sense in connection with the previous section that we just talked about, about Christ's supremacy. And he's, it, it's used in the sense of therefore or as a result of. So it points out that Christ's supremacy enables him to rejoice in suffering despite the suffering and hardship for God's glory. He can rejoice in suffering because he knows that Christ is supreme and sovereign and sufficient and preeminent. Now, uh, the commentator Mole says, M-O-U-L-E, now at this very hour, in this full solemn view of Christ, comma, you know, I'm suffering. So uh, a commentator named Radford said, he paraphrases this verse, the service of the gospel, this is a quote, not in your handout, the service of the gospel which I entered years ago is now impeded, hindered, by a prisoner's chain. Yet the imprisonment, my imprisonment, has its compensations. And at this moment, I'm finding a new joy in the midst of my sufferings as I reflect on their significance. <clears throat> also, there's an old Scottish commentator, uh, scholar, minister, his name McLaren. He says, I, A-Y-E, <laughs> I, it is easy to say fine things about patience and in suffering and triumph and sorrow when we are prosperous and comfortable, but it's different when we are in the furnace. This man, Paul, with the chain on his wrist and the iron entering into his soul, speaking of a metaphor of iron, the weight of the iron bearing heavy on his soul, Iron entering into his soul with his life in danger and all the future uncertain can say, Paul could say, now I rejoice. Now, he uses this saying 
which sounds flippant to us, but I think it was a common saying, some Scottish saying, who knows. He said, this bird sings in a darkened cage. You know, most of the time, if you wanted a, a, a bird to shut up, you'd put a, put a cover over the cage and they would stop singing. Paul sings despite the dark and the gloom and the, and the doom. And uh, I love that. Uh, I think McLaren was a character. Uh, so we have uh, Paul suffering in this verse reflect three principles. So we're going to cover these today. His suffering for others, one, and that should be sufferings, that should be plural, because the verb is plural. His sufferings for others, so there should be an S on the end of suffering. His sufferings are for others. Number two, his sufferings are identified with the afflictions of Christ. And then thirdly, his sufferings were with rejoicing. Okay, so turn to page two now. So I'm going to repeat those three things now. A is his sufferings. Uh, his sufferings uh, are for others. That should have an S as well. So, plural subject, plural verb. Okay. The sufferings are described for the sake of others. First, for you, 24a, it says, um, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you. He's talking to the Colossians, so he is relating his sufferings in the ministry to the Colossians. Uh, and then secondly, his sufferings are for the church, and we mentioned this. Um, fill up that which is behind of the afflictions in Christ in my flesh for his body's sake. So his second, his afflictions are for the church. Now, for is a word that here means in the interest of, for, for the interest of. Um, and number three, for you... The Colossians, Paul's sufferings included his chains, prison, beatings, persecutions, shipwrecks, and all the other tribulations and trials were experienced. Reading from paragraph 3, page 2, under A3, for you. Those things, those, those, those unbelievable trials, I don't know how one person could take that much in their body, they were experienced as a result of his ministry and bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. So the Colossians, that was a Gentile city, there were Jews and other folks there, but primarily they were Gentiles and they shared in the benefit of the gospel ministry that results that resulted in Paul's suffering. Paul suffered and he... <coughs> He suffered all over in his ministry in Ephesians. Epaphras got saved and came down as a result of that ministry, and they were saved. Also, number four, for his body's sake, Paul revealed he suffered not just for the Colossians, but for the sake of the body, which is the church. The benefits of his sufferings, the being having spread the gospel, extended not only to the Colossians and the Gentiles, but the whole body of Christ. Paul's sufferings contribute to our own benefit because if Paul had not been in prison, we may never have had this letter and the rich content on the deity of Christ and the reconciling work of Christ along with many other subjects. And 
that Scottish man, uh, McLaren, said, the church owes much, this is a quote, not in your handout, the church owes much to the violence which has shut up confessors. He's talking about Christians who have been imprisoned. Uh, so he, the church owes much to the violence which has shut up confessors in dungeons. The church's prison literature, beginning with this letter and others in the New Testament, and ending with Pilgrim's Progress, has been among its most cherished treasures. He brings up a point that out of all this suffering, literature came that affected millions and millions and millions of people, the Bible. Uh, Pilgrim's Progress used to be, behind the Bible, the mo uh, second most book, uh, um, second most prevalent book in the world. Uh, so, out of this good, benefit came, and it was for the church's sake. And it was for you, the Colossians, and for his body's sake, the church. Okay, number, number B. Now, this is number two of the three benefits of the aspects of uh, Paul's suffering that we were sharing uh, at the bottom of page one there. The sufferings are for others, and the sufferings are identified with the afflictions of Christ. So, Philip, and the verse says, Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is left, excuse me, that which is behind, of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. To fill up. Now, this is a special word. Paul, I love it when I come across somebody who is a great scholar and they share all of the implications of a word that Paul used. Well, this word is to fill up on one's part. It's a double compound word. He uses three different words together to describe what fill up means, what he's trying to express. Here it's used as in the sense of I am in the process of filling it up, filling up. I put the Greek word there and how you pronounce it. And it's to fill, which is pleureo, which uh, it comes from that word pleroma, which is the fullness. Uh, the noun is pleroma, and it's used of uh, in chapter 2 of... Um, the fullness pleroma of God uh, is in Christ bodily. That's the wrong quote, but <coughs> where it describes it, God's fullness dwells in Christ bodily. Uh, uh, up is uh, ana, that's the, the extent, and then in turn is ante, which means that, excuse me, to fill up in turn or to fill up on one's part. In other words, it's Paul's turn to suffer for Christ, essentially. So I am in the process of filling up uh, the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake and also for you. Now, uh, fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ. Now, I can't underemphasize this. I found so much and such different views of this. Okay. So that's been the source of a great deal of debate. What does it mean to fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ? 
Okay, don't read any more on your handout. Stop. Don't look at your handout. I'm going to give you a first view. Don't read. I saw you reading, Guillermo. <laughs> I saw you look. <laughs> I'm teasing. Okay, so the first view. Okay, thank you, sir. The first view. Uh, now listen carefully. So you're the theologian. Is this view right or is this view wrong? What is wrong with it if it's wrong? So the, the people that hold this view say the afflictions of Christ, mentioned here in verse 24, refer to Christ's redemptive suffering on the cross. And <laughs> I still see you reading. <laughs> I'm teasing. I'm teasing you. I, I, I'm teasing. So the afflictions of Christ, verse 24, refer to Christ's redemptive suffering, including his suffering on the cross. And this verse is used as a basis to teach that Christ's atonement and sacrifice and his sufferings were inadequate, not sufficient, or deficient in some way. Therefore, in this view, the believer must suffer to supplement uh, or add to Christ's sufferings for his, his or her salvation. Now, is that, is that, is that biblical? No. Absolutely not. No. So you can look at the first view. Don't look at the second. Okay. The first view is the Roman Catholic view. Uh, and it's wrong. The Roman Catholic view. Uh, and they nowhere in the Bible is this taught our suffering. Right in the middle of the paragraph there. Nowhere in the Bible is this taught our suffering is service for Christ, not redemptive. And I don't suffer for the Lord for salvation. I suffer for the Lord to imitate him and to, to, to please him and to serve him. So it's service, not salvation. This is not salvation by grace. You're saved by grace, not by works. In contrast to this view, this is exactly what Paul was not teaching and refuting in his discussion of Christ's sufficiency and his reconciling work in the previous section. Christ alone, his, his atonement, his reconciliation was complete and thorough in all that was needed for our salvation. It's not Christ plus, it's Christ alone. So Paul teaches the exact opposite of this view. Salvation is through Christ alone, who is supreme, who is sovereign, who is superior. He's divine. He is sufficient. Okay, the second view. Don't read the second view. Okay. Now this is the, this is the toughest view. This is really tough. I'm giving you... This is hard stuff. A lot of people cannot understand this. So challenge you. Grab a handout if you came in because there's, there's a, this is, this, we're on page two, second view. Okay. You're the theologian. Where's the second view coming from, brother? A lot of people. A lot of people. Some of your friends hold this view. Okay. <laughs> Not this friend, some friends. Okay. Second view, this view proposes, now is this wrong or right? This view proposes that the afflictions mentioned are not experienced by Christ on the cross. So uh, unlike the first view, they say, no, 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 these were not uh, uh, the uh, redemptive sufferings of Christ that are mentioned. But these are the sufferings that involved in his life and ministry only. So they weren't the redemptive sufferings. But these are the sufferings in his life or ministry. And this view maintains that Christ did not exhaust all suffering 
but left some sufferings for his people. The believer says then, that, that the believer of this view says that in my own person, I supplement the afflictions endured by Christ. Now this view proposes that they are supplementing or completing Christ's afflictions. Now, so far that doesn't sound too bad. The error here is what? Yeah, it's, it's uh, removing the sufficiency of Christ. I believe so. I, uh, uh, AJ said uh, removing the sufficiency of Christ. I think the error here, you look at the second view now, they propose that they're supplementing or completing his afflictions. Now, um, the danger is that you sense that you're adding to or fulfilling are increasing or augmenting or completing, uh, moving to page, top of page two, what he did not finish or do. Well, he said it is finished. I'm sorry, page of three, excuse me, page three, thank you. Uh, actually, well, what Christ did, they're saying somewhat, in some way, but what Christ did, even in his ministry, not redemptive suffering, even in his ministry, and wasn't his ministry part of his redemptive sufferings, really? So, in some way, they're saying Christ's work was incomplete theologically. So, they're adding, they're saying, to what is lacking. Well, what did Christ ever do where it lacked, lacked what was not full in the sense of what he did? Did he leave behind remains of Christ's sufferings that he didn't complete? Christ was not deficient in any way. And I think this view, while noble and fully rightly intentioned, is poorly thought out theologically because it tends to portray Christ as not completing his mission and ministry. While those who advocate this view, I wrote in top of page three, uh, tends to portray while this view, while those who advocate this view uh, exclude rightly his redemptive work on the cross, they're still portraying that his ministry was incomplete, and our sufferings are required in some way to fulfill, to fulfill and complete it. And I don't think that's right. I check with pastor; he agrees. Okay. So verse two, while well intentioned, is and certainly uh, we do. Uh, uh, suffer for Christ now, and that's right, but the expression and the understanding is wrong. And you know what? Little things make big differences in theology. So uh, I wrote down a quote. A.T. Robertson says, uh, Paul does not mean that he's filling any actual deficiency in the suffering of Christ, but there's plenty of suffering for Paul uh, and all of us. He's urging the Colossians to stand and take their turn when suffering comes. And I think that's true. And I think a better view of that is the third view. Okay. Now, you can read this one as I read. Okay. The, this view emphasizes the principle of the believer's union with Christ and understands that the inflictions that Paul is suffering are those to be endured by Christ as in Paul. And as in all of God's people, the principle is that the union between Christ and 
uh, believers is so intimate because he's the head and we're the body that he suffers when we suffer. Um, his personal sufferings and his work of redemption are over. Christ, the redemptive sufferings are over and complete. But his sufferings in us and from his ministry are over. But his sufferings continue in us as we suffer. Uh, if we are uh, suffer at work for, for being a Christian, Christ suffers with us. And scripture that proves that, Isaiah 63, 9, in all their afflictions, he was afflicted. 2 Corinthians 1, 5, the sufferings of Christ abound in us. The fel and Philippians 3.10 speaks of the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. And Acts 9.4 and 5 in the middle of page 3 is a real powerful passage. It says, uh, The Lord Jesus Christ, when he spoke on the road uh, and the light shone and he was confronted by Christ, he, he said, Saul, Saul, why, why persecutest thou me? I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. Now, I read that and it struck me. Uh, look at the note. If Paul was persecuting Christ when he was persecuting believers, Jesus didn't say, why are you persecuting my, my, my people? He said, why are you persecuting me? Paul wasn't persecuting Christ in his intention. He was going after all these people who were following Christ. And Jesus said, you're persecuting me. So if, Christ, if Paul was persecuting Christ when he was persecuting believers before he was saved, Paul was persecuting Christ who also lives in believers. So let's look under the note there. That which is lacking or left behind is not a reference to Christ's redemptive sufferings or the sufferings during his earthly ministry because Christ was perfect and he left nothing undone or remaining. What is left behind and remaining is Christ's suffering in Paul and Christ's suffering in us. As a prisoner, Paul was filling up of the suffering yet remaining for him to endure. And MacArthur says, and I'm going to more fully mention this later, MacArthur says, Paul was experiencing, you know, don't, don't lose me now, this is, this is a key phrase, Paul was experiencing persecution intended for Christ. In spite of his death on the cross, Christ's enemies had not gotten their fill of inflicting injury on him. I mean, killing him wasn't enough. So what did they do? They turned their hatred on those who preached the gospel. And it was in that sense that Paul filled up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions. I like that, um, that view. I think that's the most biblical view. Uh, the difference between two and three is you're saying God is sovereign and he has done all the suffering that he needed to do in his ministry. His ministry was complete. Now we suffer for him. Okay. Moving on. And we're still going to keep in mind that suffering, that view of suffering. <coughs> Excuse me. Because um, now, I hate to distract you, but I made a mistake. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to blame uh, Microsoft Word. See that? I think it's the number four. His sufferings were with rejoicing. That should be C, because that's our third thing that we're looking at. We looked at uh, his sufferings for others. We, his sufferings are identified with the afflictions of Christ, and now his afflictions, the third thing, is his sufferings were with rejoicing. So that should be C, one, and two. I'll take a drink here. Thanks, Roy. Thanks, <clears> Roy. <throat> 
Okay. Paul's sufferings were with rejoicing. Um, I want to share with you uh, Charles Erdman quote that kind of recaps. Paul was always joyful. He had learned in whatsoever state he was therein to be content. While a prisoner at Rome, he wrote to the Philippians an epistle, a keynote of which is joy. Joy is one of the theme of themes of Philippians. During the same imprisonment, he composed this letter to Colossians. As he thinks of the glory of the gospel, he dwells on the privilege, his privilege of proclaiming the reconciling work of Christ. He could say, even while feeling the fetters, the, the, the chain on his wrist, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. He has found indeed that the service in which he is engaged involves distress and pain. Yet he rejoices not because of sufferings, because of the sufferings, but in spite of them. Not on account of them, but in the midst of them, for he realizes they are endured for the benefit of the church. They are for your sake, he writes. <clears throat> Paul's sufferings, number one, were marked by joy and rejoicing as evidenced in Scripture. Acts 16, uh, verses 19 to 34. You don't have to turn there, but... This is one of my favorite passages. Paul and, and Silas go to jail. And these are not pleasant prisons. This is not even, even the supermax worst prison. They're better than Alcatraz was, and it's worse, it's worse than Alcatraz was in its worst moment. Um, but Paul at midnight in verse 25 of Acts 16, they prayed and sang praises to God. And the prisoners heard them. I bet they did. They said, these people are crazy. Why are they doing? They're you know, they probably thought they truly were insane. And suddenly there was an earthquake, and the foundations were shaken, the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosened, and the keeper of the prison knew that he was a dead man if they escaped. And he comes in, and Paul cried with a loud voice, do thyself no harm. He was about to kill himself. And... He said in verse 28, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. And they call for light. It was so bad you couldn't even see in that filthy place. I mean, this, you cannot imagine how bad these prisons were. I read about it, and I decided not to tell you because it was yeah. so bad. Uh, he called for a light, and he sprang in, and, and he came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out, and he said, Sirs, I mean, he was so overcome with that testimony and what happened, and they were still there, because I would have been gone. <laughs> he said, what must I do to be saved? What a testimony. Um, so Paul, Paul's rejoicing, Paul and Silas rejoicing in that prison. I, I don't, you know, it's easy to say and hard to do. Uh, yeah. I, I'm good at whining and not necessarily yeah. the best at rejoicing. Yeah. <laughs> I work at it hard. But that's tough. When you're in the middle of that terrible ordeal, it is tough. Um, got a quote by a man named McPhail, a biblical scholar that said, You may occasionally hear the clang of the Roman chain, but you never hear a groan from the brave prisoner. Paul's testimony is, We glory in tribulation, 
I take pleasure in reproaches. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather suffer. Here he affirms, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And he was in prison when he wrote this. Yeah. Amazing to me. Um, a, pa a passage from a message from uh, MacArthur that I wanted to share with you um, because it, it, it's the best summation of this that I've read. Uh, MacArthur says, so we can rejoice in suffering for, he's got five reasons and he, and he adds a six. So we can rejoice in suffering because it brings us near to Christ. It brings assurance of salvation. It brings a future reward. It results in salvation for others, four. And five, he says, I just have to throw this in. It leads to a terrible frustration on the part of Satan. Yeah. Because, it, it, because he's trying to do all he can to knock us around, and all that comes out of it is good results. It puts a dent in the kingdom of darkness, he says. So now having said those five things, Colossians 1.24 adds another reason. This brings us right to the text again. He says, I'm not only rejoicing in my suffering because it brings me near to Christ, because it gives me assurance of salvation. It brings a future reward, and it results in the salvation of others. And five, it frustrates Satan. But I'm rejoicing because it fills up that which is remaining of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh, which means this. Look, I am receiving in my body what is intended for Christ. This does not mean there's anything lacking in the atonement. Right. It doesn't mean there's some kind of short change in the value of death of Christ. Right. It means this. The enemies of Christ were never satisfied with what they did to Jesus. Right. If they could have killed him twice, they would have done it. Yep. Do you know, I said that, not him. Do you know that they hated Jesus with an insatiable hate? They wanted to add to his suffering. As soon as Jesus ascended back into heaven and he wasn't around anymore, the world hated him so much. Who did the world attack? The church, didn't they? They attacked the church. They began to persecute the church and persecute the church and persecute the church. And why they and why they were and why were they whipping the church and burning the church at the stake and throwing the church to the lions? Why? It, why? It was because they hated those individual personalities? No. No, it was because they stood, those personalities stood in the place of Christ. And since Christ wasn't around to get, they got the people who stood in his place, and that's what it means. Paul is saying this, look, the world isn't done persecuting Christ, but since he's not here, whatever is lacking in what they want to do with him, I'm receiving into my body and standing in his place who stood for me, as a cause, he stood for me in my place on the cross as a place, as a cause for joy. To take the blows meant for him when he took the blows meant for me on the cross makes me happy. If Jesus Christ could hang on the cross and take my sin and the punishment I deserve, I think I could take a few punches for his sake. That's what he's saying. Mm -hmm. I thought that was really down to earth, easily understandable, and I go, Okay, got it. Thank you, Dr. MacArthur. Okay. Um, number two, Paul now rejoices in his ministry uh, and in his suffering for the Colossians. And 
Curtis Vaughn said, Paul's attitude had nothing in common. Now, this is the world's view of suffering in many cases. Paul's attitude had nothing in common with those monks and ascetics of a later time who inflicted torture on themselves in the belief this would give them merit with God. Really, Paul's joy was not in suffering as much, but in the sufferings for your sake. That is to say, it was the distinctive character and circumstances of his suffering that enabled him to find joy in the midst of them. He saw them as a necessary part of his ministry and knew they were incurred to glorify God. <clears throat> so Paul now rejoices in his ministry and his suffering for the Colossians and for the church because he's suffering for Christ and his glory. Now, one other uh, quote from MacArthur. The element of personal joy, I, I, I wanted to give you this because I love this term, the spirit of his ministry. John MacArthur says, the element of personal joy, joy was the spirit of Paul's ministry. I love that term. What's the spirit of our ministry? Is it drudgery? Is it, all right, okay, I got it. Yeah, okay, yeah. If that's there's nobody else, I'll do it. All right, okay. Everywhere he went, he was rejoicing. Do you realize that when he wrote Philippians, he was rejoicing and, and he was in jail? Mm -hmm. I told you a few weeks ago, he said that. I didn't. Uh, joy is the deep down confidence that God is in control in my life. And that doesn't change. That's where the joy comes. Paul's joy was generated because of what Christ had done for him. And I'll tell you something else. Keep this in mind. And I had never thought about this. Humility generates joy. Now, I never thought, I never, never thought of that. Uh, I thought humility generated humility. <laughs> uh, do you know something? Humility generates joy in this sense. Paul always thought of himself as so unworthy that even having the privilege of dying for Jesus Christ was a cause for joy. Do you get that? He always thought of himself as so unworthy that even the privilege of dying for Jesus Christ was a cause for joy because he didn't think he was worthy of that. When you lose the joy is when you get to thinking you're too good to be suffering what you're suffering or being having it like you're having it. Now, I'm smiling because I've done that. <laughs> and that's the wrong perspective. You know where he was? He was in prison. That's where he was in prison. Remember him in the jail in Philippi, his feet and hands in the stocks? Mm -hmm. In the middle of the night, in the inner dungeon, what was he doing? Singing. Mm -hmm. Paul rejoiced even though he was bound by a chain in Rome. No circumstance could affect his deep down confidence that God was in control of his life, and that brought satisfaction and joy. And the spirit of his ministry, beloved, is joy. Christians ought to be just beaming with joy in the midst of everything and anything. And that's what the world is going to see. And they're going to say, hey, there's something wrong with those people. And that's what we want. In First Thessalonians, he writes, uh, I think it's in chapter 2 there, verse 19 says, What is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are you not in the presence of the Lord at his coming? For you are our glory and joy, end quote. Listen, 
he rejoiced about God and he rejoiced about everybody else. And consequently, what happened to him didn't matter. That little letter of Philemon in the seventh verse says, we have great joy. And here's and here he's a prisoner again when he wrote this. He always talks about joy when he gets in jail. <laughs> we have great joy because the hearts of the saints are refreshed by you, brother. When I hear about you, Philemon, I'm so happy for you. You see, he always got his joy in relationship to the Lord and then his relationship to the people. If you love God, we're going to love each other. Uh, and so it didn't matter what happened to him because he was totally, absolutely unselfish. So, summary here. Paul joyfully, as a servant, this is not in your handout, Paul joyfully as a servant or a minister of God, now in chains in prison, <coughs> suffers as Christ did. He follows that example of Christ. He imitates him. He suffers to spread the gospel to the world for the benefit and sake of the Colossians and the Gentiles and the church at large, Christ's body, for God's glory. So, I mean, I have to say, what are you doing? You know, I'd like to say, what is Scotty doing? But I've already done that. <laughs> are you imitating Christ? This is one way in which we imitate Christ, willing to suffer for God's glory. Um, and, and I found it fascinating that MacArthur went on to say that there are three guards that protect your joy. I love this too. He said humility, devotion to Christ, and trust in God. Those things will guard your joy. Um, <clears throat> I want to leave you with this quote. Um, there were two men that died in England um, as martyrs. They were burned at the stake. Um, and they, um, Hugh Latimer, uh, when tied to the stake along with his friend Ridley, um, encouraged Ridley by saying, Be of good cheer, Master Ridley. By the grace of God, we'll light a candle in England today that you'll never be put out. So that should be our spirit. If we are called upon to suffer for Christ, we should have joy and we should recognize our Lord Jesus Christ in humility, glorify him, devotion to Christ, and have trust in God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to look at your word. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ in our attitude and our actions and our love for you. Lord, help us to be willing to suffer for you, but Lord, fill our hearts with joy. And we pray, Father, that you would, your spirit would work within us, that you would help us, Father. I thank you for each one's represented here today. I pray that you bless all the families. Those that are watching, be with them. We pray for comfort, for healing. And we ask, Father, for uh, uh, the, the service that follow, that you would bless it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.